Dear church family and guests and visitors, welcome to worship this morning. And as we worship, we hear our God's call to worship this morning from Psalm 135, the first three verses. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. And as we gather for worship this morning, we once more confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, and who keeps truth forever. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof. Then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, And who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so he drove out the man and placed him at and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So far the reading of God's solemn and truthful word. Dear church family and visitors and guests with us this morning, where are you? Maybe children, you're saying, Pastor, that's a silly question. We're here in worship, the worshiping the Lord this morning. I'm not asking this question so much as a geographical or a spatial question in terms of where you are in the proximity of a building or a place, a country. More, we use this question in various ways. Where are you in your course of studies? Maybe someone asks. Or where are you in your relationship with so-and-so, a significant other, young people? Or where are you in your understanding of a given concept in maybe your math class or science class? Are you understanding it? Are you getting it? Or young people, this past week we were, many of you were confronted with Where are you living? Or how are you living in Babylon? Are you living as a stranger and a pilgrim in this world? Or are you living here but longing for another country, a better country, a heavenly country? Where are you? Related to this question is, where are we in our understanding of who God is in his names, in his attributes, in his character, and how are we responding to those names? Over the past half a year, we've been considering at various points through the book of Genesis different names that God has used to describe himself, to tell us who he is. And it needs to be more than just knowledge that comes into our hearts and mind. But where are you in your understanding of who God is? And how is it impacting the way that you are living? If you will recall, in the first two names that we looked at were found in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we were introduced to the name God, the most generic name for the Lord, a name that's used in the context of God's, first used in the context of God's creation of the whole world. We saw how the Lord is a God of order, is a God of wisdom, of power, of might. He's a God who is an eternal God. He existed before the world began. It describes his glory and his majesty, his transcendence. But in the very next chapter, as we get a, a second account of the creation of man, we're introduced to his covenant name, his personal name, the name of Yahweh, or in our English Bibles, in Lord, in all capital letters. A name that describes how the Lord desires and delights to have relationship with those that were created in his image. And as I said, these names are not just revealed to us to store up in our minds and for information and we can move on. 
But the Lord calls us to respond to these needs and how we live and how we think in every area of our life. And this morning we want to consider how Adam and Eve, how Satan responded to these two names, but also how we in our fallen human nature respond to them often. But also how the Lord in his mercy continues to come to us with overtures of his grace and mercy in the revelation of his name. Satan would have us believe that the Lord's revelation to us about himself is an absolute lie. But the Lord, even when we have fallen into sin, comes with his mercy and and grace and and reveals again the truth of who he is directing our attention as he searches out his people directing our attention to the way back to him and we hope to do this this morning in consideration of Genesis chapter 3 particularly focusing on our our center point text is verse 9 but we want to look at it within the context of this chapter. So I'd like to read verse 9 right now together. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And this question is going to form the theme of our message this morning. Where are you? Are you being captivated or challenged by the lie, the lies of the evil one? Are you, are you captive to that lie? Or have you been confronted, comforted, corrected by the truth? Genesis 3 is a passage that in so many ways is, is a dark passage. That, that confronts us with the reality of our great fall. Genesis 1 and 2 had left us with the understanding that this vast, this world that we live in, this universe that we've been able to explore in so many ways was very good, the Lord had said. It was very good. There was no sin. There was no shame. Everything was glorious and beautiful. And now at the beginning of our chapter, we're introduced to a particular component of that creation. We're told that the serpent was one who was more subtle, or a snake. Something was crafty and cunning than any other creature in the field. Now we need to note that this snake in and of itself was part of, was, was part of God's good creation. And there was nothing inherently evil in the snake itself. But Satan used it because of its crafty, cunning character as a suitable means of to tempt our first parents, Adam and Eve. And as we read the rest of the scriptures, we're confronted with the reality that Satan and his evil's ways, death and destruction, are often associated with snakes or serpents. We look at, for example, Revelations 12, verse 9. John explicitly calls Satan a serpent. He says, and that, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And here in Genesis 3, this is what we see Satan doing. He's doing it with intensity, with purpose, with determination, as he's coming to deceive the whole world. By confronting our first parents, Adam and Eve, with the lie, leading those whom the Lord had created in His own image to live in relationship with Him, to question the Lord, to believe the lie. And friend, this is what He continues to do day after day. Desiring to lead humanity, you and I, in the pursuit of of following falsehood, death, destruction, leading us away from God. And in our chapter, we see 
Satan misrepresenting the very character and purposes of God. And we see this primarily in three ways in our chapter as he, as he attempts to, to draw us in to the lie. First, he undermines the very being, the, the character of God by, by even just how he refers to the Lord. Notice that in, in chapter 2 of Genesis, beginning at verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord is referred to as the Lord God, as Yahweh Elohim. Twelve times we, we see a reference to the Lord. The Lord describes in, in these verses the, this detailed creation of his, of his creature, of his image bearer, Adam and Eve, and the place that he's placed them in. He's provided them with a beautiful, a well-furnished garden that they could live in and enjoy him. 2 verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to dress it, to keep it. And it was the Lord God the covenant-keeping Jehovah who commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. The Lord God, our covenant-keeping God, the one who desired relationship with his creatures, his image-bearers, placed man to live in perfect liberty in the context of his good provision and his good commands. But Satan comes. He comes and he says in verse, verse 1, Yea, hath God said? He minimizes the Lord's intimate desire for relationship. He excludes the name Yahweh. Hath God said? Suggests a God is just this transcendent God, unapproachable. And Satan would love it if we believe that. That this Lord, this God who has created you, children, if he's unapproachable, then we're lost. And Satan continues to do this time and time again. It's his desire for us to have a misunderstanding of who he is. Maybe it's through poor teaching where we're instructed or told that God is an angry God who is unapproachable. Or maybe it's through poor examples in our, in our family lives where Satan then comes to us and says, if this is what God is like, you don't want anything to do with him. Or, or maybe it's on account of our sin. And Satan then says, and maybe he, he mischaracterizes God and says something along the lines of, God couldn't be merciful to one like you if you've fallen into this or that sin. Raising questions in our mind about who God is. And he does it over and over again. But second, Satan also desires us to question what God has said. Not just who God is, but what he has said. Note how, what Satan says. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Instead of stating what the Lord had said, he asks it as a question, has God said? Or as one translation says, did God actually say? Raising the possibility of doubt. Satan portrays the idea that we, as the Lord's creation, have the right to question the Lord. He portrays the idea that the, the word of the Lord is up for debate, is open for questioning. And young people, many of you are going to experience this, particularly as you go into secular, post-secondary education, or even out in the workforce. 
as people come and question the authority and reliability of the Word of God and saying it's not valuable in academic work or for debate. For And Satan would love nothing more than for you to believe that. He would love it if you believe that the Scriptures are subject to our judgment and our scrutiny. But friend, when we raise, when we raise ourselves up to this level to thinking we have the right to question scripture, we're lifting ourselves up, thinking that we are gods. And friends, when we compromise, when we compromise on this fundamental truth that there, that the scriptures are open for debate, we have no foundation no authoritative ground for our life. And you will soon find yourself floating along with the currents of public opinion, personal preference, your fickle emotions, and it always flows downhill and away from the Lord. The third thing that Satan does is he questions God's perfect and good purposes for why he does what he does. And in the process, in our passage, he blatantly contradicts the Lord himself. In verse 4, we read, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan, having drawn Eve in, now explicitly, without shame, contradicts the very word of God. You shall not surely die, he says, in contradiction to what the Lord had said back in chapter 2. For the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. With the appearance of supposed authority, he takes the very words of God and he twists them for his own evil intentions and purposes. Satan knew that he was a doomed creature. For him, death was inevitable. But he desired to bring down as many as he could in the process. And, and having gained Satan or Eve's attention, he now brings this lie home, packaging it with what a, the appearance of something that's neat and tidy in a, in, in a supposed rational and logical argument. You will not surely die, but you will become like God. And God knows this, says Satan. And he's holding this back from you because he is a stingy God. For he knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened. You will be like him, knowing good and evil. And so Satan comes and packages his lie with something that the human heart and flesh, the fallen human heart and flesh finds attractive. Satan does this all the time as he presents various situations towards us, presenting it as neat and tidy and enticing and worthy to be taken, only to find out its destructive nature after the fact. I know there are a number of you who like fishing, and don't you do this all the time? You disguise that nasty hook with an attractive bait, luring that fish in, to its demise. And Satan does this again and again. He continues to package his lies in ways that are pleasing to our fallen nature, that lead to the possibility of you beginning to question who God is or the Word of God or the intentions of God. And this comes from our very youngest days to the end of life. Children, maybe, maybe you've, you've wrestled with this temptation in your mind. 
Satan would love you to believe that you will have a long life ahead of you. And there's no real sense of urgency for you to seek the Lord today. And he maybe says something along the lines of, tomorrow's another day. And he presents you with the things that you find enticing or encouraging or joyful. But we're not certain of tomorrow. But we do have today, and so the Lord comes to us again today. Children, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Or young people, Satan would like you to think that as you look around those other young people in your, in your lives or as you see them in the virtual world of social media, it seems like as they portray their lives in their various social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Be Real, whatever it might be, their lives look so clean and tidy and neat. And you wonder, what's wrong with you? Leading you to think that your life is just empty, meaningless. And this is something that Satan will love you to believe. And he then provides various alternatives to give meaning or purpose and identity in life. Whether it's in what you watch or play or do, who you think yourself to be, hoping that it will give a sense of purpose and identity. But ultimately it leads to emptiness when it's apart from God. Or maybe, maybe young people, you're being confronted with various sins and Satan tries to portray it in a way that says it's okay to dabble in it here and there. One look, what hurt will there be in that? But he lies and he lures and he desires to entrap you and to entangle you. And adults, we too are confronted with the lies of Satan. Maybe he, he tempts you and challenges you to say, just put in a few more hours that can pay for this or do that. To establish yourself, to get ahead, support. And he couches it in the, well, i got to provide for my family or the parents in the blink of an eye. Your children go from toddlers to adults. And you ask yourself, where did the time go? And you missed out on your interactions on those formative years with your young people. Or maybe it's in, in sin patterns that have become very easy. Before it was just once in a while and Satan says, oh, that's okay. Once in a while is okay. But now they're regular and they're, they're ongoing. And Satan lies to you now saying there's no hope for you to escape. Or you, or convincing you it's not that bad. Others are doing it. Or maybe grace has become cheap. You say, I can just confess my sin. But there's no godly sorrow over that sin. And Satan wants you to believe that this is okay. Or maybe those who are older in our midst. You don't know how many years you have left in this world. You know, your head tells you, and the scriptures have told you that death is inevitable. We were, we will all die. But do we live like that? Are we ready to die? And maybe Satan lies, tempting, attempting to convince you that you won't die or there's no 
sense of urgency, so you do delay. Even though you maybe are 70, 80 years old. Delay in setting your house in order. Or maybe Satan has come to you at this point in your life and say, it's way too late for you now. There's no hope for one like you who has wasted so much time. So why are you bothering to, to try to turn to the Lord now? Lies. One lie after another. And he wants you to buy into it. To be captivated by it. For it leads to despair and destruction. As, as Satan conversed with Eve and cunningly was questioning the very character of God and his authority, we not only see Eve listening to the temptations, but she was soon engaging and soon buying into them, being taken captive by them. We first see Eve giving ear to the very question of Satan and responding to the evil one. Verse 2 and 3, we read her first response. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it. And then she adds to the word of God, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. In responding, Eve is drawn into conversation. And for the most part, she repeats back the very word of God, the Lord God, to Satan. But then she adds to the Lord's command, Neither shall ye touch it which opens up Satan's assertion that God cannot be trusted and that he is one who, whose divine love is now presented as envy, his service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as, as a leap into life, as, as one commentator said. Friend, we need to not only be careful that we do not contradict the Word of God like Satan did, but we also need to be careful that we don't add to the Word of God requiring more than the Scriptures demand or call for. This is something we see in the Scriptures over and over again. We just think of the Pharisees, for instance, who, who added to the Word of God what it mean, meant to keep the law. But Eve was not only drawn in, not only added to the word of God, but she was soon entangled in the web of Satan's lies as she began to linger and to look. Verse 6, we, we see, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, Eve had gone from just listening to the temptation to now engaged in it, being tempted. What James describes in 1, 1 verse 15, but every man is tempted, and when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Where are you? Where are you in your interactions and dealings with Satan's temptations? Are you resisting them, pushing them away with the Word of God? Or have you been taken in? Have you been taken captive? Where you're not only listening, but now considering, thinking about them, looking, longing... Friend, if this is where you are, you are in a, a very precarious place and the Lord calls you to return to Him. To take His, His Word, His authoritative Word and respond to it that 
to the temptations. A word that is able to defeat the lie. Isn't this what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness? Took back his own word, the word of truth, and sent Satan away. James, as James continues in verse 15, he says, When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Eve's lingering look did not stay at a look. But soon it was action and blatant disobedience as she took from the fruit and ate. And the moment that she ate and had given to her husband, Adam, uh, who Moses writes was with her, Adam was complicit in all of this, being with her. When she had taken and eaten, there was immediate recognition. Both of their eyes were opened. Not in the way that Satan had said they would be opened. It was not with a sense of victory or joy or wonder but it was open, their eyes were open with this overwhelming sense of defeat. Wishing that the previous action could be undone. Maybe, maybe you've been in a situation where that you said, if only I could turn back the clock, but unable to. And this will always be the case with Satan's promises of fulfillment. They will always be anticlimactic, leaving one empty, hopeless, and helpless. Or as we read in, in our passage, in these words, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Sinful disobedience may have some kind of temporary fulfillment or joy, but it's that at best. But it will, and it will always leave one empty. It will leave one with a sense of guilt and shame that Adam and Eve experienced in the sense of knowing they were naked and feeling and needing to cover themselves. Sin will always leave us exposed and in need of a covering. So where are you, friend? Are you walking the way of temptation, flirting with it? Are you looking? Are you longing? Are you lingering? Are you walking in the way of disobedience? Are you guilty? And filled with shame on account of what you have done? Do you have this overwhelming sense that you're missing out on the purpose of life? Because you're apart from God. And apart from Him, you will never be satisfied. Are you hiding as Adam and Eve did as the Lord came to look for them? You're hiding in and among the trees, thinking that you can escape, seeking to cover yourself with your own sense of righteousness? Friend, it will only leave you emptier and more helpless. But the beautiful reality is that the Lord came. He came in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, searching out for his disobedient image bearers. He could have come with immediate death and destruction, but he came searching for lost sinners, and he continues to do so, desiring to have relationship with even fallen 
humanity. Which we'll look at in our third thought as the Lord confronts us with truth. In verses 8 and 9, we read these beautiful and amazing words. And they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where are you? Where are you? A question from the Lord God. A question that flows from His covenant grace and mercy as He searches out and finds His people. For He's a Lord He's a God who uncovers sinners. And as He does this, we often see, as we see in Adam and Eve's case, and as we know from our, from our own lives, that we often try to hide ourselves, to run from the seeking, scrutinizing eye of the Lord. The friend, He knows where you are. Even though he asks the question, where are you? He knows where you are. He knows all about you. He knows of your pathetic attempts to cover yourself in your own righteousness. He knows of your attempts to hide yourself from his presence. He knows of your excuses He knows of your attempts to cast blame like Adam and Eve did on others around you. He knows that by nature we don't want to own up to and confess our own sins and that we'd rather shift the blame to to those around us. Friend, if you are going to be rescued by the Lord know that He will confront you in your sin. He will root out your excuses. He will uncover your hiding spots. And if you're still running from Him, He calls you to stop, to humble yourselves before Him. If you're still attempting to cover yourselves with your own unrighteousness, or whatever it might be, He calls you to recognize that you're only adding to your own guilt and misery. If you're still blaming others, excusing yourself, thinking that like Adam and Eve, you can pin your actions on someone else in your life, He calls you to own up, to confess your sin to Him, to believe that you are the man, as Nathan said to David, And to confess, as David did, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The Lord searches out and he uncovers his hiding wayward people. With his presence, as he comes as the Lord God, as the Yahweh Elohim, as the covenant God, searching out, knowing where His people are. But He not only uncovers, He not only exposes you for who you are, but He provides the very one who will deal with your sin. He'll deal with the guilt of sin, the power of sin, as we see portrayed in in the first gospel promise that we find in this chapter. The Lord knows that there's nothing that you or I can do to reconcile ourselves to God, that we're trapped, we're captive, we're in need of another to, to crush the power of sin and death and Satan. And it's the Lord who comes to His fallen image bearers, to to sinners like you and me, and 
directs our attention to this one, the seed of the woman, as we read in in verse 15. The Lord God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed, and it... The seed of the woman shall bruise thy head, and thou, Satan, Satan shall bruise. Oh, sorry, and it, the seed of the woman will bruise or crush thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. This seed of the woman, who is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, would be the one who would come and who would crush the head of the serpent who would defeat Satan, who would defeat sin, who would conquer death for ones who are worthy of death. Well, yes, he would be bruised, as it were, by Satan as he suffered at the hands of evil and wicked men who was put to death on the cross. But it was in that very being put to death on the cross that He bore the wrath of God against the sins of people like you and me. But He not only suffered and died, but He rose again and now sits as the conquering King at the Father's right hand. This first Gospel promise leads us to hope for sinners like you and I. It doesn't reveal all the ins and outs of who the Savior would be and what it would be for Him to to be bruised. But we know from the rest of Scripture, the continued revelation of the Lord, that this one is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is one who is perfect God and man, one who is the only mediator between God and sinful man, the one who lived a perfect life that you and I could never live, the one who, who died that horrible death, a horrendous death on the cross, so that sinners like you and I could be freed from our guilt, our sin, our shame, but also have eternal life, perfect in God's sight. Jesus, the seed of the woman, came so that sinners like you and I could be made alive through His death clothed in His righteousness, as which is typified at the end of this chapter in verse 21, where we read that the, the Lord gave unto Adam and to his wife coats of skin, ones that He made and clothed them. Skins of animals. Animals that had to be shed, whose blood was shed. And our Lord Jesus shed His blood so that you, dear believer, could be made righteous in the sight of God. And, and dear one who is apart from Jesus Christ right now, you too can be covered in the blood of Christ, clothed in His righteousness because He gave His life. And being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we don't have to hide anymore. But we can walk with the Lord in His presence and not be consumed. Where are you? There's only really two places that you can be in in relationship to the Lord. Either you are captivated by the lie of the evil one, engaging in his lies, walking in disobedience, excusing your sins, blaming others, running from God, hiding from him, attempting to cover yourself in your own righteousness. Or you are walking in the truth. Having been confronted by the reality that you are apart from God, living, that you were living for yourselves, worthy of death. Confronted with the reality that you needed another one, the seed of the woman, to take your place. 
confronted with the reality that there is mercy and grace to be found in the Lord God. Where are you? This is an ultimate question. A question whose answer needs to be answered by you today. Where are you? Amen. Lord, we are thankful that thou art a God who comes searching, looking for lost sinners. Who knowing where we are still ask the question to draw us out. Where are you? Lord, help us to answer that question today. Where am I? Where am I in my relationship to the Lord? Am I apart from Him? Lost? Living for myself? Or am I sheltered in the blood of Christ? Lord, help us to reflect And not to let the birds pluck the seeds away. Do go before us in this afternoon. We pray that we would keep thy day holy. And live for thee and worship thee today. In Jesus' name, amen.